Well, in our last talk, we made the suggestion that Noah was really the sidekick of Lamech's family, that Lamech had had this uh, idea that he was going to have a child uh, who would comfort or give rest to his family because this particular child, and we said that they would have had many children in those days, this particular child called Noah was going to do all the donkey work on the land and was going to allow the rest of the family to get on with their careers and uh, having their life, not having to worry about tending the land, which he rather bitterly, resentfully says, the Lord has cursed. And we suggested that the, the genealogy in chapter 4 is, in a sense, parallel with that in chapter 5, and that, in fact, people like Tubal Cain and Jabal, Jubal, the, the, the uh, musician, that these are all Noah's brothers or half-brothers. And we suggested that there was Noah living this rather dumb life as everyone's run around. Um, he, he delayed getting married in his own private life uh, and had his first children at 500, when all the other people at, at his time had children far younger than that. And we suggested that, in fact, the only children Noah had before the flood were those three sons. And we know that because God tells Noah to come with all his household into the ark. And we talked about how Noah was a, an amazing example of 120 years building that ark, preparing it, etc., appearing a fool, as it were, for Christ's sake, and, and witnessing through the Spirit of Christ. He was God's man who got a chosen in that generation to, to save not only himself, but to give the chance of salvation to, to everybody else. Now, picking up again from uh, chapter 6 here, um, just uh, carrying on verse 9, the generations of Noah were as follows. And we tend to be set up, therefore, to expect a genealogy. We don't. The generations of Noah were. Noah was a just man and righteous and walked with God, etc., etc. So then, his ultimate offspring, his ultimate generation, was actually his character and his personality. And I think that that is uh, important because very easily individual character development gets somehow subsumed beneath the pressures of, of rearing kids. And uh, no one's putting down the importance of, of raising children. But I think that point needs to be made that ultimately the only ultimate thing that, that, that lasts forever is the character that, that we develop. And the generations of Noah were his life and his personality and who he was as a person. So then, we've avoided in the first talk mentioning, I suppose, what for some people is the elephant in the room. The moral aspect of God apparently destroying all these people on earth. Chapter 6, verse 6, we're told that God was, was grieved in his heart. The, the motive for him doing this was not as in the, the pagan legends about a flood. It, it was not that God got kind of mad with people and so decided he was just going to really blast them. He did this because he was grieved. And I suggested in the, the previous talk that Moses was consciously alluding to a lot of the myths that there were going around at the time that Israel was in the wilderness, um, myths about floods and the beginning of, of creation. And he was, as it were, saying, look, this is the real story. Now, in all those myths, the gods got angry. The gods got irritated, and so they lashed out of mankind through a flood or some kind of destruction, and only a minority was saved. 
And then I think Moses purposefully corrects that by saying, look, God was grieved. He was really sad. There's a lot of allusions to the flood in later scripture, and some of them are really quite instructive. Proverbs 3 verse 20 in the RV says that by his knowledge, God's knowledge, the depths were broken up and the skies dropped down the rain. This was something done by God in wisdom, in knowledge, and in grief. And uh, Peter's take on it, 1 Peter 3 verse 20, was that God did this because he planned on saving the world through water. Now, now that is quite a profound observation, that God did this in order to save the world. Because he, he saw, it seems to me, that unless he was going to do this, that even Noah, even Noah, would, would lose his faith, and that the way of God, the way of salvation, would die out upon the earth. And so he did this in order to, 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 to keep his plan of salvation going. Job was one of the, it seems, one of the earlier books that, that was written, and it seems that Job is the Jobab that we read about, in, um, <coughs> again, in, in Genesis that he, was, he would have lived in fairly early, early times. So it's not surprising that throughout the book of Job there's quite a lot of references to, to the flood and quite a lot of allusions. And uh, there's some specific mention in Job 22 verse 16, but a, a lot of passages in Job 38, 26 uh, elsewhere definitely are alluding to the flood. And I'd like to just draw attention to one of them, Job 37 from verse 11 to 13. We were told that God sends or sent his waters upon the earth partly for correction, partly in judgment, and partly for mercy. Partly for correction, partly in judgment, and partly for mercy. So yes, there was judgment. There was an attempt to correct. There was, above all, mercy. Now, you know, this is pretty hard for, for us to, to, to get a grips with, that God could do this for mercy. I, I do not pretend to, to offer you any kind of trite explanation for what is, you know, for some, uh, the elephant in the room. But how could God do this? In the end, however, to, to, to put a sinner out of their misery, if they really do not want to repent, and I mean, 120 years of Noah pleading, and living out a sort of an active parable and visually appealing, building this ark, etc., etc. Uh, I, I really think that people have had their chance. He was a preacher of righteousness, uh, Peter also says. So really, God sort of drawing a line and saying, okay, well, if, if you don't want to, to, ha to have my way, okay, so, so that will have to be the end. And in, in grief, I say this. It's rather like the rejected of the Day of Judgment. God is not going to eternally punish them. He's going to say, well, okay, I, I will destroy you. And they will, will want that, it, it seems to me, that themselves. You know, put me out of my agony as, as quickly as I can, as I can be put out of it. And so, again, it will be done in grief and, in a sense, in mercy. So then we come to verse 6 again. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, repent, as you know, means to think again, to have a change of mind. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God can, for example, know all things from the beginning, but he chooses not to? He 
is, for example, all-powerful, potentially. And yet he, <clears throat> he has delegated his purpose into the hands of men and women. And so, in a sense, not everything that God wants is done. His will is not always done because people don't want to do his will. Now, of course, God could enforce it, but he chooses not to. And if you see what I mean, <clears throat> that is the ultimate sign, I think, that God is uh, so powerful that he could do what he wants, but he chooses not to. Now, if God can limit his power, he can limit his omnipotence, I don't see why he can't limit his omniscience, that is, his ability to know all things. In fact, I personally am persuaded that that is what he does at times, because otherwise the whole language in the Bible of God being shocked at sin, of God being hurt by human action at the point at which that action occurs, that would seem to me to be all rather meaningless, really meaningless. If in fact you know, God knew this kind of billions of years uh, beforehand, uh, he knew all this ahead of time. So sort of what's the meaning in those words, in that language that is used? So on that basis, this is why the Lord of the parable said that there's a story about a man who represents God, who sends out his different servants to to see how things are going in, the, in his vineyard, and then they beat them all up, and then he says, well, finally, I will send my son. Surely they will reverence my son, but they take him and they kill him. Now, how is it possible to understand that against the idea of a God who, who knew all this right from the beginning? Well, I can only understand it myself in terms of God choosing to limit his omniscience. Why does he do that? Because he so wants to relate to us. That's why I think he does it. So that he's kind of relating on our terms. That is how I personally understand this whole idea of God rethinking. It repented the Lord. He had this sense of regret. Why did I do this? He was so hurt. Oh, why did I do this? Now, there is another possibility. And I, well, there's probably many possibilities, but there's only other, one other one that appeals to me as having any legitimacy to it. Uh, and it's this, that more often than we might imagine, when we are reading about the Lord, as in Yahweh, or Elohim, translated God, we are, in practice, in practice, we are reading about the angels. Although it may not actually flag that to us immediately, when you think about it, God is operating through angels. It's not that sort of abracadabra, God decides something and it happens on earth. He has chosen to, to have some kind of, if you like, mechanics as to how he achieves that. And he has chosen to do it through, through his angels. So in Jude, he, Jude quotes uh, with approval, it seems, a prophecy from Enoch that is not recorded in the Old Testament that talks about the flood in terms of the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints, or his holy ones, his angels. So the flood was brought by the angels. And we're told in verse 8 that, okay, repent of the Lord that he had made man on the earth, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now who are the eyes of the Lord sent out to roam all over the earth? They are the angels. And Noah found grace in their eyes. And when we were told it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, well, who actually made man on the earth, ultimately? I mean, 
you know, mechanically, physically, literalistically. Well, it was the angels. And the, the whole idea that God kind of looked down and, and noticed something you know, was going on down there, um, rather like with the, the whole business about Sodom, that he sort of looks down and notices something is going on there. Um, this is the angels, you, you could argue. So then, it, it seems to me that another possibility is that we are reading here what I will call the language of angelic limitation, because angels are limited. They don't know everything. They don't know the date when the Lord Jesus is going to come back, but God does. And that opens up a, a fascinating window, a possible window, into what we will be like in God's kingdom, because we shall be like the angels, the Lord said in, in Luke 20. And it doesn't mean that we're going to know everything. We're going to grow in knowledge of God. And there's a, a lovely uh, turn of phrase in, uh, in, in, in John 10 where the Lord talks about how he knows the Father and how, as he knows the Father, so we also shall know the Father. And, and it's in a continuous tense, growing to know, that we shall grow to know God. And again, when you you just think about it, about the infinity of who God is, it, it would be completely simplistic to think that a snap at the day of judgment, we sort of click into God and we know as much as God. That, that can't be. I mean, what is, if you like, the point of eternity? Because God is eternal and infinite. The whole wonder of eternity is that we shall grow eternally in knowing him. Well, Going on in Genesis 6, verse 12, the whole of humanity had corrupted, had, had corrupted the earth, they had corrupted themselves. Now, interestingly, that is the same Hebrew word that is later on translated to destroy, when, when we read about God destroying the earth, uh, and the, uh, the flood destroying the earth. Now, I think that's significant, because... In a sense, God's judgment is really a, um, a, a sort of a confirmation of what, God, of what uh, mankind has chosen for him or herself. So in verse 17, where God says, I even I to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, you might like to just scribble a note in your margin there that destroy there <coughs> is the same word as corrupted in verse 12. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Same word. It was destroyed. So then, God is repeating what people have themselves chose, chosen to do. And so, again, the judgment, the rejection of, of, of people by God, is really only them being given what they themselves have chosen. And much as we, we try to believe firmly and 100% in God's grace and God's salvation that I will be saved, that is because we are human and because we are sinners, there is inevitably that sense of doubt, fear, concern that occurs to us at times when we think that I shall come and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ before the presence of his glory. And although God has promised I shall do that with exceeding joy, and I shall be spotless and blameless in his eyes, in his opinion, not that I am, all the same because we are human. We inevitably, we inevitably, I think, worry somewhat about, well, who am I, sinful man in the presence of God Almighty? And 
when we think then about condemnation, I mean, in the end, uh, we're going to our destiny is to the right or to the left. There is no middle road. There is no purgatory that, that is to the right or to the left. I mean, if we do not ultimately want to be in God's kingdom and we show that in our lives, then we will not be. But the other, on the other hand, if we show in our lives that, look, I want to be there. More than anything else in the world, I want to be in God's kingdom forever and ever and ever. Well, by his grace, we will be. Because the only people who will not be are those who have said, I don't want to be there. So then, on to verse 14. He is told how to make this uh, ark and uh, the layout of the whole thing. And incidentally, the whole thing uh, wasn't really so much a, a boat. It was like a huge box. There was no ability to steer it. There was no ability for, for Noah to sort of have a rudder and direct it. And that is what life in Christ is all about. We spoke, I think, in the last talk about how Peter says that going into the ark is like being baptized into Jesus. So then that is what life in Christ is like. Blown around by the wind, the spirit. The wind blows where it wants, and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes to. Although, of course, we in one sense do have power over the direction of our lives. In another sense, there is this greater hand that is guiding us. Anyway, they were to make rooms, or the Hebrew word means nests, in the ark. And I think that's a lovely little idea, but it shows that there is a unique individual place for each of us in God's purpose. You remember the Lord just before he died in John 14, says that in my father's house there's many abiding places. And I, I wonder if he's alluding actually back to, to the ark. Um, there's many abiding places, there's many little rooms in my father's house, and I'm going to prepare the place for you. He, I don't think he's talking about going to, to heaven, he's talking about going to the cross. Peter's just said, where are you going? And he's saying, well, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you, and I will come again in resurrection uh, and receive you unto myself. So then, there is a unique place for you, and for me, in God's kingdom, in God's house, in his plan, and his purpose. And the uniqueness of that it is absolutely wonderful, because we live in a world and a society which I think tends to depersonalize us, that makes us feel that we are just, uh, well, not even an individual, but we are dealt with like everybody else is dealt with, we are dealt with as a group, uh, whereas God loves us individually. And we'll be given a name that nobody else knows, apart from us and the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus and us. And, and that's a beautiful idea, that in one sense, our eternal destiny will be something completely personal between him and ourselves. So now to make this ark and pitch it, verse 14. Tending to connect that with the idea that we meet in Ephesians, chapter 1 of Ephesians, and chapter 4, verse 30, uh, of our being sealed in Christ, with the Spirit. I think a similar idea in chapter 7 verse 16 of Genesis that the Lord shut Noah in. Now that Hebrew word for pitch in verse 14 here, it's related to the word for covering, as in the atonement, the covering for sin, the covering uh, that, that was on the, uh, on the top of the ark, what is called the mercy seat, the, the place of covering, the whole idea of, of atonement of covering for sin. So then, in Christ, we are covered. 
Now, what does this mean? Does this mean once saved, always saved? Well, Noah could, if he wanted, when he was there, floating about on the, on the water, of course he could have cut a hole in the ark and jumped in the water, if that's what he wanted to do. And so can we. God, in that sense, is not going to stop him. But, as it happens, he, he didn't. Uh, it'd be pretty crazy to do that. The point is that we have been sealed, we have been covered with a pitch, with this covering, and we have been shut in by the Lord. And it's like a pretty desperate or crazy person to actually try to get out of that, just as crazy as if Noah tried to jump out of the ark when it was you know, floating there on the water with the rain coming down and people yelling and screaming as they were drowning to death all around him. What does that mean, though, that we are covered? It's tempting to think that one o'clock in the afternoon, I'm okay with, with God and I'm okay with Jesus. Five past one, I drop something, I spill the coffee, and I, I swear under my breath, and I get in a bad mood, and whoopsie, I'm out with God. At uh, 17 minutes past one, I quickly mutter a prayer to God, oh God, please forgive me for uh, saying what I did. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, um, yeah, through Jesus, amen. And, oh, whew, right, okay, now we're all okay again. And we go on for another five or ten minutes, and then something else happens, and whoopsie, we're out again for 20 minutes, and then we come back to God, and etc. This is not, this is not how it is. <clears throat> because we are sealed, we are sealed, we're, we're shut in. We are in covenant relationship with the Father and with his Son. And that means that we are with him. In the same way as if you're married, well, if there is a, a moment of tension between you, hard words, etc., it doesn't mean, oh, well, we're not married anymore. Oh, we made up. Oh, okay, so now we're back together again. Now, you are in covenant relationship with each other. Uh, and so it is with us in garden and with his son, that we are with him and we are, done, we are even in Christ, in him. Not just with him, but in him. It, it's a fairly intimate kind of, uh, kind of figure. Now, in the same way as that is true for you and me, it is also true for others who are in Christ. And that is very difficult to believe. We see people acting very poorly towards us or towards others, and we think, how can it be? That person's supposed to be a brother or a sister in Christ. Well, they still are a brother or a sister in Christ, because we can't say that they, they jumped out of Christ or he, he threw them out or something. They are still covered in him, no matter how bad their behavior might be. It's not for us to say that they are not anymore uh, in Christ. So it's a great comfort to us, personally, in our own failings, that I am with him and in him. And we recognize, of course, in our repentance, that how patient you are with me, that you, you stick with me, that I bear your name. And the whole idea of bearing a name is, of course, alluded to in the whole idea of marriage, that, that we have taken on his name, that we are part of him uh, even, in our, even in our weakness. So then, verse 16. The AV says, and none of English Bibles have used to make a window, but this is not the same word as window, and we read later on that uh, Noah made a window in the ark to, to let the dove and the raven out. This is, in Hebrew, definitely means a light, uh, and the RV is right on that. A glistening thing it comes from the word for pressed oil, from the, 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 the idea of 
glistening and glistering. So he was to make a light. Now it could have been an opening somehow underneath the roof that, that gave light. The, the rabbinical uh, commentaries suggest it was a precious stone, it was a Yudavan farming, etc. We don't know, but um, the Lord Jesus says that <clears throat> he is to be the light of our world. And I am inclined to see this as uh, pointing forward to the idea that we, in Christ, in the darkness of the world around us, with the rain coming down, that there is light in the ark. That there was some strange light, or somehow he made a light that was to give light in the, in the ark. And I imagine this thing glistening all the time, this thing alight all the time, so that in him there was light. Verse 18. I will establish my covenant with thee. Now, one good thing about the AV, probably the only good thing about it, is that it, it uses the thee and you to differentiate between you singular, the is used, and you plural, when ye or, or you is used. So then, God was going to make this, establish this covenant with Noah personally. And so the, the salvation of, of Noah's family and the animals and anyone else who would have come into the ark was on account of this relationship that God wanted to make with Noah personally. Now, we're told in Hebrews 11, verse 7, that Noah saved his family by preparing the ark. On one level, Noah, I think, it is clearly a symbol of the Lord Jesus, that God made this covenant with his, his son. And we are saved on account of being in him and with him. But our salvation is not, <clears throat> of course, because we're so smart or righteous or whatever, but because of the Lord and because of our association with him. It's like the promises to Abraham. Paul says this in Galatians 3, very clearly, although the point is often missed in, in verse 16, that the promises to Abraham related to him and his son in the singular, and that son is Jesus, Paul says. So Abraham and his son, Jesus, were going to live forever on the earth, inherit the earth forever, be a blessing to all people, etc., have God as their personal God. The, the promises to Abraham and one other person in the singular. Paul gives us a grammar lesson there in Galatians 3.16. But then he goes on in the end of Galatians 3 and says that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ and therefore all that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And you too therefore are heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that was made to Abraham and his son, Jesus. So that everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And you see this kind of foreshadowed here with Noah. You'll notice throughout the whole record how God is always talking about Noah in the singular. The animals are to come in unto Noah. The, uh, it's Noah who is to build the ark. It's Noah who is to do this, that, and the other. It's always about Noah the, you, in the singular. However, I, I think we see here a, a wider principle. Noah, Hebrews 11:7, saved his family by preparing the ark. To some extent, others can be saved, or we can be saved, 
by a third party. So a passage in Ezekiel 14 where we're told that in Ezekiel's time Israel was so wicked that even Noah would have only saved himself and not his family. Now, thinking that through, the implication surely is that Noah saved his family because there was an element to which they themselves believed and had some modicum of spirituality, and there was an aspect to which, in which Noah saved them. That's why in Ezekiel's time Israel had become so wicked there was absolutely no base spirituality in them, and therefore Noah couldn't have even saved them. He could have only saved himself. And yet Hebrews 11 says that Noah did save his family. So I think that implies there was some modicum of spirituality there, but not enough. It's like in Mark 2, verse 5, that when the Lord saw the faith of the friends, he said to that paralyzed man, rise up and walk. When he saw the faith of the friends, not the man's faith, but the, the faith of the friends. And if we accept that, this really gives a huge motivation pray, to make effort for others, because if our, for example, our prayers for other people, for their spiritual growth, for their repentance, for their conversion, for their lives, for blessing upon them, if God sort of is only dealing with people on the basis of their personal free will behavior, well, what's the point? What's the point to pray for somebody? If God is only going to help that person insofar as that person wants to be helped themselves, it would kind of make a nonsense of the whole idea of praying for others. But the fact that, to some extent, we can influence the, even the, the eternal salvation of other people, that means that, you know, Paul was, every single letter he wrote, he said to each of them, I'm praying for you all the time. Prayer and care for others becomes something that we, we want to do 24-7, because it actually can lead to somebody being saved who would not otherwise be saved if we had not made that effort. Second Peter 2 verse 5, Noah is described as the eighth person out of the eight who were saved. And I, I get the impression from that that he was the one who went into the, into the ark last, and that he put the salvation of the others first. And so he's given this strange title, in second, I mean grammatically strange, as a, as a word, it's rather strange, in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, Noah, the eighth person. The RV says Noah with seven others. But uh, the idea really is the eighth. He was the eighth one. When really he was the first one, because God says, I will make my covenant with you, with thee, with you singular. But he's the eighth. He's the last one. Why? Because he put the salvation of the others first. So then, <clears throat> what are we going to make of these uh, these animals that that come into the ark? Well, verse 19. Noah was to uh, bring these animals into the ark, verse 19. But then in verse 20, they shall come unto you. So there were some animals whom Noah had to bring into the ark, sort of take them with him, and others who came to Noah and entered the ark of their own volition. So then, in one sense, as Jesus says in his parable, Luke 14, 23, we are to go out and to compel people to come in. And yet, there are other people who come to us, who come to the Lord, rather, 
about people who seek him of their own volition. And we're, of course, in a lot of our formal preaching, we're, we're better at coping with those kind of people. You, know, you put up a website, um, you, you hold a meeting in a, in, a, in a church hall or whatever, and you hope that people are going to come to you who happen to be looking. And I, I suppose these animals can represent um, people being saved in Christ, the clean and the unclean, or those that are invited, the good and the bad, whatever, are gathered into him. And Noah, as a type of Jesus, uh, gathers them in. Some people, as I say, will come of their own volition, they're seeking, and others have to be sort of dragged in. And uh, you remember the, the vision when uh, Peter's uh, being told how he's got to preach to both Jews and Gentiles. He sees this vision of clean and unclean animals. And in that vision, the clean and the unclean animals represented um, people, Jews and Gentiles, to whom Peter was to preach. And I wondered if he made the connection the clean and the unclean animals being gathered into uh, into the ark, that he would have seen that actually this was all uh, typified all those millennia ago, really, with the, the whole thing about the ark. Verse 19, animals of every sort. And I think that that is, again, a picture of the gospel net that, that, that picks up fish of every type. So then, according to some of the visions in Revelation, when we get these visions of how when Jesus comes back, the faithful are praising him, they're described as people from every nation, every tongue, every language, etc. So then I would say that somebody from every nation, family, language, dialect, even a difference in one of those passages in Revelation that makes a difference between people's language and dialectos, uh, their dialect. Um, every personality type, every, as I say, every dialect, every language, from everywhere, from every nation, someone is going to be saved in Christ. Uh, just uh, branching off at a tangent a little bit, does that mean that everybody has at this point in time heard the gospel, or at least that Someone has been converted from every little tongue and dialect of the Amazon jungle or uh, very remote parts of the, of the world. I don't know, but suddenly because of communication being limited, I very much doubt the gospel has gone into all those places until at least very recently. That's why I think the quicker we get out to unreached people, the quicker that converts are made literally from every tongue, dialect, etc., from all over the earth, the quicker Jesus will come. He says that. The gospel must go into all the world, and then shall the end come. And that's something we can uh, chew upon and, and reflect on uh, a little bit. But there's certainly an urgency to take the gospel, literally, uh, into all the world. Now again, verse 20. All those animals will come unto thee. That is Noah. The focus is always upon him. And I think the Lord had that in mind in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And yet he also says, Matthew 10.28, come unto me. Jesus says, come unto me. But he also says that all that the Father gives him, of their own volition as it were, come to him. Now, there's 
exactly the situation with these animals. Some of them came to Noah, and others he had to uh, come and get to come to him. So verse 21, he had to take food for them. So I imagine then that this would have involved Noah observing these animals carefully in those 120 years to understand what type of food they required. Now, if his gathering of the animals represents our gathering of people for the kingdom, I think we can we can take a lesson from that, that to get people into Christ, you've got to understand them. Now, I don't mean that we go out and act and party, as it were, with them, but there must be a human understanding. Um, and that is, I think, very often lacking if we're going down the road all the time of, well, we're here to welcome those who want to come to us. Well, yes, some animals did come to know of their own volition, but his duty was to actually go out and also bring them in and to care for them in the ark. And to do that, as I say, I think he took 120 years to observe what they ate, what they were like, what they liked eating, what they maybe could get away with eating, um, because... You know, he, he had to look after them for over a year. They were actually inside the ark for a year and ten days altogether. So then understanding people, observing, walking around with our hearts and our perceptions and our eyes open. I mean, people are always saying, well, how do you preach to people? How do you persuade people? Well, you know, try to understand people, to be sensitive to them. So then 2 Peter 2 verse 5, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we suggested that uh, in the first talk that this was really through his example, through his building of that ark, through the fact that he clearly explained to people that, well, there's a flood going to come and wipe all this stuff away. God's grace waited, First Peter 3.20, it awaited is what the Greek really means. It doesn't mean God was kicking time, waiting. He was awaiting. The, the idea of expectation. He was looking for something. So then, as Noah was there witnessing with the Spirit of Christ in him, Mr. Peter 3, 19-21 says that at this time, uh, the Spirit of Christ went and, and preached the spirits in prison. And early on in Peter, 1 Peter 1.11, we're told that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. In other words, they had the disposition or the mind of Christ, even though he was not then in existence. And so somehow Noah had this Spirit, and that was his witness. And this really is, of course, all such a picture for us, that as we're making our witness, that God is there eagerly waiting and expecting and looking for some response. So we're not we're not alone. <clears throat> God is there with our witness, eagerly hoping that someone is going to respond. And I think that that should encourage us because preaching, trying and trying to turn conversations around and suggest the gospel to someone, it can be a very lonely and soul-destroying thing. But God is there behind us, willing it to happen, wanting it to happen expecting and hoping that it's going to happen and sharing our disappointment when it does not. But he is waiting eagerly, just as we should be, for at least someone to respond. And it seems to me that maybe Noah's wife was his first convert and his sons were his converts as well and also the women that, that they married. So his witness did 
come to something. Right, we'll pick up uh, chapter 7, verse 1 uh, next time.